This is The Lonely Voice with Peter Orner on Book Public from Texas Public Radio. I'm Yvette Benavides. On this episode of The Lonely Voice, Peter Orner and I discuss Ivy Day in the Committee Room by James Joyce. This is an Election Day story based on the 11th anniversary of the death of Charles Parnell. He was a nationalist and largely known as the uncrowned King of Ireland. He was a brilliant organizer and leader, but a scandalous affair with a married woman caused his fall from grace. In the story, canvassers come in from the cold and gather in the committee room for the new campaign they support, if half-heartedly. They're nostalgic for a past that seems brighter and lighter compared to the current prospects before them in the pending election. The sensory imagery of the story, along with the complex and profound ideas told in such accessible and humorous ways, make the story a favorite among Joyce's works. Here now, Peter Orner and I discuss Ivy Day in the Committee Room by James Joyce. What I love about this story is how visual it is. It, you, you, it opens with a, a, a guy in a, in a you know, campaign committee room where people can, you know, well, like a headquarters, campaign headquarters uh, in Dublin during a municipal election for the, the city council, they call the corporation. And, and basically it involves people who are canvassing for a certain candidate who are coming in out of the cold and the rain to to warm up by the fire and have a beer and and talk and this story captures guys talking about politics in such a joyful comic and you know completely sorrowful way too that it's like nothing else i know this is true at first when you first read the story it's like there are so many characters to keep track of but their um, personalities are so defined that you can keep them straight. And you're right. They're all sitting around talking. It is funny. And it is also enlightening about so many different heavy things, including social issues, um, morality, uh, youth culture in uh, Ireland at that time as we learn about uh, old Jack's um, son. I mean, there's there's layer upon layer of- Old uh, Jack's ne'er-do-well son. Ne'er-do-well, yeah. no account, boy. <laughs> but there, there's there's layer upon layer of insight. You don't need to read the footnotes, right? I mean, it's just like, you, if you just keep reading- No, you don't. And you don't need to, like, you know, I, I counted nine characters. Jack, <laughs> O'Connor, Hines, Henshee, Turney, who's not in the story, Colgan, who's not in the story because they're the candidates, Crofton and Lyons. Everyone but Jack is a canvasser. They're out, they've been out campaigning. They have now come in, except for Hines, who's sort of the, the pivotal character who comes in at the end and, and reads the poem. But it's really about guys just talking, talking trash, talking smack. There, there isn't, you know, I, I, I'm wary of getting a lot of morality about this, uh, from, you know, taking from this story a lot of morality. I think the point of the story in some ways is that, you know, is that there's very, very little morality involved in politics. I think that I feel like they just take it in stride. Like at this point, even though they glorify the past and Parnell, it feels in moments, they're not all in with that, but it feels in moments like that's just something to do when you look in front of you and everything looks so terrible. I mean, we say this in 2022, was it always this bad? How did it get this bad? It's never been as bad as this. 
Right. And didn't we say that during the you know times of the Gulf War? Didn't we say that during the times of you know Monica with Clinton? Didn't we say this, et cetera, et cetera? You know, we've always said it, but I think that with the caveat that you know it does feel now that the breakdown is is hard to comprehend, and that's another reason why I went back to this story because I wanted a more human discussion, human story about politics. These are these are individual guys trying to make a buck. You know, they criticize the opposition, but not in a way that we see today. Nothing like it. There's something it's not civil necessarily. It's just it's just down and dirty. And it's also not naive or innocent. No. Would, it still feels like all of these guys have experienced a lot. They have a lot of fears and worries somewhere in there. I mean, they do talk about the economy. They do talk about jobs. They do talk about, you know, the Labor Party. They do talk about the no account son. They, you know, they talk about a lot of different things that um, show how informed they are about the issues. And yet, you know, tricky, tricky dicky Tierney is really not their guy. Well, but he is their guy. They're out They're out there campaigning for him. Why is he their guy? Because he's paying them. But you can tell exactly that he's not their guy, like you say. In the very first page of the story, O'Connor takes a cigarette out of his mouth. And what does he use to light the cigarette is one of the, uh, a, a piece of campaign literature of Tierney. That's what he uses. He does it twice. He burns it up. That's what he care. That's how much he cares about the guy he's canvassing for. Except there is a turning point when Turney does deliver on sending the booze in, and then they're like, "Ah, oh, Turney's not such a bad guy." Right? It's hilarious. It's hilarious. And old Jack's giving a bottle to the seventeen-year-old kid. Yeah, and then he says, "What?" He says to him, "That's how it starts." Like you're the one who just gave it to him. What? Like, what's the other line? The thin end of the wedge. Yes. Yes. <laughs> But there's so, so much, you know, even just to a point of like early on in the story, Mr. O'Connor had been engaged by Mr. Turney's agent to canvas one part of the ward. But as the weather was inclement and his boots let in the wet, he spent a great part of the day sitting by the fire in the committee room in Wicklow Street with Jack, the old caretaker. They'd been sitting thus since the short day had grown dark. It was the 6th of October, dismal and cold out, out of doors. So he's not been out canvassing O'Connor. He's been inside getting warm. And then there's a moment where um, where Mr. Hinchy comes in and the description of Mr. Hinchy having cold ears is one of the great lines that I can think of, of Joyce. The line is, then a bustling little man with a snuffling nose and very cold ears pushed in the door. It's just because he's been out working. He's been out getting votes for Tierney. It says Mr. Heinz laughed and shoving himself away from the mantelpiece with the aid of his shoulders. Yes. Made ready to those lines like that. I just have to go back and and reread three or four times. But you no, know, I did that. I did that in my in my room today. I leaned against the wall and pushed off with my shoulders just to kind of see what that. Yeah. Like how you would describe that. And it's something we do. Right. We do push ourselves off the wall with the shoulder, our shoulders. But how often do we see it described? So that that's part of the thing is like. You know, Joyce, I mean, Joyce is Joyce rants about Parnell in every book and Ulysses. There are rants about Parnell. And in this story, there's rants about Parnell and other stories in Dubliners. There's rants about Parnell. Joyce loved Parnell. 
he and he he thought that the the country had betrayed this man by turning on him because he was involved in that scandal but but I, again i think it's the small touches of this story that and, and really all of joyce that makes him great and not the way that he sends us to our dictionaries our encyclopedias or google or whatever i mean he himself said you know i'm going to keep the professors busy for a thousand years and you know that was a joke but some people don't get it there's some writers who create life on the page like like nothing else and you know if you're too busy trying to piece together the you know who Turney was who the, apparently this editor really cares he ultimately concludes there was no tyranny of course there's no tyranny this is fiction you idiot but um <laughs> but apparently a lot of the other names are true you know so and he loved to do that he loved to mess with us he loved to put in fictional characters and real characters interacting together because he's a fiction writer, everybody. So Parnell is dead and does not appear as, as a living person. And he's so alive in the story, at least, I mean, to a certain point, it almost seems like in comparison, all of these poor guys that are sitting around coming in from the, the cold and, and drinking um, I almost feel like that Parnell is like the light in the space, even though I feel like it's sort of the light of, of their nostalgia. And yeah, I mean, it, I, I think it's the light of their nostalgia. I mean, it's not really about him, although you could argue that Heinz is a true believer. But Henshi is the one who mentions him uh, late in the story. Henshi says, Parnell, said Mr. Henshi, is dead. Now, here's a way to look at it. And then their argument has to do with whether or not it's OK for the King of England to come to Ireland and for them to um, how they should react. And I guess Parnell, in, in, you know, in, in context that Irish readers would, would know, wasn't going to have the King of England come. And if the King of England came, he wasn't going to acknowledge him. And he, he, he asked that his supporters ignore the king. But times have changed. And Henshi is, is, is saying, look. Now here's a way to look at it. Here's this chap come to throne after his old mother, keeping him out of it till the man was gray. He's a man of the world that means well by us. He's a jolly fine, decent fellow, if you ask me, and no damn nonsense about him. He just says to himself, the old one never went to see these wild Irish. By Christ, I'll go myself and see what they're like. So he's actually going against Parnell's, you know, saying, hey, no, don't, don't acknowledge the king. And, you know, we're talking about Ireland here and the king, right? So Henshi is all over this. But then the story turns because Henshi himself starts to kind of get misty-eyed for Parnell. And then he starts giving speeches about how great Parnell, Parnell was. The same character. Takes off his hat and the whole thing. Yes. And he says, you know, he's the one who, like, like you quoted earlier, like, you know, he's the one who, die down, dogs, lie down, you curs. Or maybe I heard that <laughs> myself earlier. But anyway. He said, you know, he says, you are right, Crofton, said Mr. Henshi fiercely. He was the only man that could keep that bag of cats in order. The same guy who he just said is dead. We got to move on. And that, to me, is such a beautiful example of how people and characters aren't consistent. I mean, this is this is one page later. He's celebrating Parnell after he said, look, he's dead. We got to move on. I get a little excited about this. No, story. no. Sorry. You know, this is there's nothing more imperfect. Than, than an election. I think tragically, people don't understand that as much as maybe they used to. These guys knew, you know, this is a negotiation, right? Mm -hmm. we, we know Tyranny's not our guy, but 
actually Turney is our guy because he's the guy at the moment. He's the guy that's paying us. And, you know, presumably Henchy actually kind of believes in Turney. He's like, Turney understands that the king's going to bring in money and that's what we need. And so the nationalists are not the nationalists of old. They're the nationalists of now. And so he's practical, I think. Mm -hmm. And that to me, that seems to be, you know, the kind of real politic that is sort of getting lost. Well, it is interesting that the men in this committee room talk about all of the different ways of looking at the politics. So they talk about Colgan, a working man, and there's this explanation about what's the difference between a good, honest bricklayer and a publican, A, hasn't the working man as good a right to be in the corporation as anyone else, and a better right than those shonins that are all always hat in hand before any fellow with a handle to his name. And so that, you know, they're able to bring in a lot of context to us, whether we look it up or not, we do understand that they're informed up to a point. They yeah. Themselves of why one candidate won't work out in the current situation that they're in, or based on whatever whatever else is going on with them. It, it's so important. It's Heinz that says that because mm -hmm. Heinz is the only character in the story really that is sort of non-aligned, which makes him suspicious, right? Mm -hmm. Heinz, and you know, I think I think that I'm sure that scholars have said this, but I mean, it's it's clearly the the Joyce character. You know, he was sort of famously hard to pin down politically. He didn't have any real, like, he, you couldn't really track him. And I think he's somebody who may have, I mean, he loved Parnell, that we know. But in general, he, he didn't always wade into this in a way that, um, that maybe people would have wanted to or the scholars may want to track. Like, he's, he's so good at representing every point of view possible that, you know, I think he's hard to figure, pin down. But the character in this story that kind of stands a little bit apart is Hines. Mm -hmm. And he's the one who says, hey, look, why don't you think about the other guy, the guy that that the attorney's running against, because he's actually actually comes from the working classes. And they're like, wait, so what are you talking about? It's like and he's like, yeah, I'm just I'm just saying it. Right. And mm -hmm. then O'Connor's like when he leaves and, and Hinchy says, so what's that guy doing hanging around here? Why is he here? Because he's suspicious. He's not a canvasser. He's just some guy off the street that they know. He's not working for Tierney. So what's he doing in the story? He's he's the person who is not the political actor here. He's he's the poet who who gives the poem at the end of the story, which is, you know, think of a bunch of five guys drinking around drinking in, on a cold day in October. You know, the last thing they're going to do is want to hear a poem, but that's what they do in this story, and they love it. They love this poem. <laughs> Well, before we get to the back to the poem, I do have to ask you a very important question. And it is about Puck. <laughs> I think it's about the apologetic Puck. <laughs> the pop of the bottle. Oh, right. The apologetic pop. Yeah. It's the P-O-K in the story that occurs in very interesting moments in the story i think again it's hilarious it's hilarious and it's also beautiful and it's also hearable like it's not if you think of the, this pop it's not the pop of a champagne bottle it's just a little pop right and a little like, <laughs> better your, your pop was better <laughs> I pop was a little more too enthusiastic but it's almost like you know to call that apologetic is you know again one of these 
things that, you know, and I, I, you know, Joyce has, he's not perfect. There's some ridiculous things and Ulysses and misogyny all over the place and, yeah. you know, a million things. Um, racism, definitely in Ulysses. Uh, but there's something about his use of language that is, you know, so extraordinary and that he would hear that pop as apologetic is just one example. This poem that everybody loves, does everybody love the poem? I in, mean, the, a, in the moment? It's a cheesy poem, but it's, it's you know, it's one of these, I mean, Heinz is not a great artist. I mean, I said Heinz is the Joyce character, but it, it's as if Joyce wasn't a good poet, right? And uh, he wasn't a very good poet anyway, but you know, it's, it's, it's a, it's a, it's kind of a, you know, it's a, it's a over the top celebration of, of a man that again, who was imperfect and, and had a downfall because people turned on him because of this, you know, he, Kitty O'Shea, you know, he had an affair with Kitty O'Shea. She was married. Mm -hmm. Her husband got upset. It was in the divorce papers that he was having this affair and it brought, and it brought him down and, you know, it brought out in the knives and it brought out the hypocrites, you know, Probably had plenty of people who helped bring down uh, Parnell were having affairs. Yes, and I, I do appreciate the the little paragraph before the poem where Heinz is hesitating, and he takes off his hat, and he's kind of rehearsing in yes. his mind. Yeah, why don't you read that? Why don't you read that exchange? Because it's so great. Mr. Hines did not seem to remember at once the piece to which they were alluding, but after reflecting a while, he said, oh, that thing, is it? Sure, that's old now. Out with it, man, said Mr. O'Connor. Shh, shh, said Mr. Henchy. Now, Joe. Mr. Hines hesitated a little, little longer. Then amid the silence, he took off his hat, laid it on the table, and stood up. He seemed to be rehearsing the piece in his mind. After a rather long pause... He announced. He cleared his throat once or twice and then began to recite. <laughs> he cleared his throat once or twice. It's also great. <laughs> <laughs> you know, he's dead. Our uncrowned king is dead. Oh, Aaron, mourn with grief and woe, where he lies dead, whom the fell gang of modern hypocrites laid low. He lies slain by the coward hounds he raised to glory from the mire. And Aaron's hopes and Aaron's dreams perish upon her monarch's pyre. In palace cabin or in cot, the Irish heart, wherever it be, is bowed with woe, for he is gone. Who would have wrought her destiny? He would have had his Aaron famed, the green flag gloriously unfurled, her statesmen, bards, and warriors raised before the nations of the world. He dreamed, alas, twas it but a dream of liberty. But as he strove to clutch that idol, treachery sundered him from the thing he loved. Shame on the coward caddiff hands that smote their lord, or with a kiss betrayed him to the rabble rout of fawning priests, no friends of his. <laughs> it goes on, it goes <laughs> on. <laughs> the death of Parnell. 6th of October, 1891. And remember, it's the 6th of October, so it's the anniversary of Parnell's death. And to honor Parnell's death, they wear ivy in their lapels because that was what uh, people, the mourners in the cemetery, the famous cemetery that he's born in, in Dublin, um, they put, they they took, it's Glass, Glasnevin Cemetery, they had ivy growing. And so they just picked the ivy and they put it in their lapels. And that became a, 
tradition on his death day. So what's interesting is that uh, at least two of the guys are wearing ivy. And so that they're, you know, clearly um, O'Connor and, and Hines are, are, you know, are celebrators of Parnell. Um, maybe not so much the others, including Crofton, who's a conservative, but he's only he's canvassing because his conservative candidate dropped out. So he's supporting the nationalist ticket. But even Crofton, it's Crofton that gets the, the, the very famous last line of the of the story where where uh, Hinchy says to him, what do you think of that poem, Crofton? Cried Mr. Hinchy. Isn't that fine? What? And then, Mr. And then it's it's a line of indirect dialogue. Mr. Crofton said it was a very fine piece of writing, <laughs> which it's not. <laughs> but you know, even Crofton will respect the dead. Yeah. <laughs> but I mean, he probably had knives out for Parnell when he was alive. It's like when Bill Clinton dies. You know, are the people who you know is Newt Gingrich going to say something nice about him for five seconds? Maybe, maybe, right? That's mm. what we do. <laughs> But it has to be indirect like this, I think. Yes. Yeah. Kind of flat <laughs> sentence. <laughs> right, right. He was a quite a talented you know, campaigner. <laughs> but I, I think this story really hinges on this idea, as you said, um, about nostalgia and about political nostalgia in particular. And I think we all have it. I mean, think think how we talk about you know, oh, in the 2008, when Obama gave his acceptance speech that night when he won the election, um, you know, in Chicago to that crowd, what that was like. And 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 I remember the night Clinton won and, you know, he's in Little Rock with uh, Al Gore on the stage. And um, maybe I'm giving too much away about my politics, but uh, there are these moments in our lives when we look back to them with, you know, definitely rose colored <laughs> tints and uh you know those years weren't perfect either but this is a great example of people of all stripes looking back on that and saying wow that those were those were days you know that's what this story is about it's about looking back and at a time when we may have we now pretend now that there was unity back then James Joyce is the author of Ivy Day in the Committee Room it can be found in the collection Dubliners Peter Orner is the author of the new essay collection titled Still No Word From You, Notes in the Margin. His previous essay collection is Am I Alone Here? Notes on Living to Read and Reading to Live. He's also the author of two novels and three story collections, including Maggie Brown and others. Peter Orner is the director of creative writing at Dartmouth College. This has been The Lonely Voice with Peter Orner on Book Public from Texas Public Radio. Write to us at bookpublic at tpr.org. Jacob Rosati composed our theme music. Dan Katz is Texas Public Radio's news director. We had help this week from David Martin Davies. I'm Yvette Benavides. <laughs>